This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The COVID-19 pandemic triggered major changes to our economy, workforce, and income. It has led to massive job loss, drops in income, and a decline in the standard of living for many people. While government programs like the Canada Emergency Response Benefit brought relief to a number of people, it can be argued that CERB did not go far enough or help as many people as it could have. COVID-19 underscored pre-existing problems with how we organize work, distribute income, and the price of food and housing. There are lessons to be learned from the pandemic about how we support the most vulnerable people in our communities. Today, we discuss employment and income during the pandemic. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta. We've got a jam-packed program for you today because we're talking about a broad area, which is income and work and how people have fared in the last year of the pandemic. In some parts of the country, the impacts have been severe. Uh, We think about Ontario or British Columbia, they've been especially hard hit. But no doubt, when we look back on the pandemic, It does offer some insights into what has worked and what needs to be changed. Peter Grafe is an associate associate professor at the Department of Political Science at McMaster University. He is one of four investigators, four researchers, who's examined work and income distribution during the pandemic by conducting a major survey of Ontarians. Peter joins us today from Hamilton, Ontario. Hello and welcome to the program. My pleasure to be here. Tell us in a nutshell about what you were hoping to accomplish with your survey. Yeah, I mean, this is a survey that we did in partnership with the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. And so, uh, you know, about a year ago, uh, we were sitting down uh, with people from the roundtable and they were telling us what they were hearing in the community about how people were living in what was still then the first wave of the pandemic. And clearly uh, they knew coming out of it that they wanted to know more about what was happening in terms of how people were working, how people were living, how people were getting by. And so uh, we set up a survey that we send out to Ontarians uh, in the fall asking questions uh, about what it was like to be at work for people who lost work, you know, when and how did that happen? Uh, for people who had to live uh, on the uh, Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, you know, what was that like in terms of their ability to uh, maintain a roof over their heads and feed themselves? Uh, For people who were excluded from the CERB, uh, you know, including many people on uh, provincial social assistance, you know, what was it Mm -hmm. like for them in terms of their experience trying to uh, survive in that moment? So that was our interest, was trying to understand how people uh, lived in terms of their work and also in terms of their income and capacity to sustain themselves in the midst of the pandemic. Given that it was such an evolving and is an evolving situation, 
Did you ever wonder about the timing of the survey? Might you have waited and done it maybe six months down the road or even two years down the road? Would you have gotten a, a different, if not a better, more comprehensive picture had you waited? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a need, uh, I mean, either for us or for other people to have a look at that. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which what we're seeing in people's experience through to the fall, you know, foreshadows uh, some difficult times ahead in terms of people emerging uh, less housing secure with more debt, uh, and also to consider yeah, what are some of the, the longer-term impacts uh, that mm-hmm. hit people in different positions. What you would lose, I think, with that kind of greater retrospective is some of the very specific ways that people dealt with the particular moments of the pandemic. And so, I mean, I think there's some important stories here, for instance, about how people on provincial social assistance uh, had faced very particular difficulties uh, during the pandemic in terms of being able to have access to food if they didn't have access to a credit card or losing their capacity uh, to you know, access services due to the closing of you know, transit systems. And there's a number of things that happened in a very specific way in the first and second waves of the pandemic that we'll probably lose from sight when we're looking back in two or three years' time. Uh, again, because mm-hmm. they were such intense, uh, such intense experiences, but relatively time-limited ones. So, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, there's a need uh, to have the longer view, um, but I think even at this moment, there's a way in which we can consider, you know, what were the experiences in that wave, and and what might be their implications in the next few months, even in in terms of questions about people facing evictions uh, and the necessity maybe to have public responses to, you know, push against that so that we don't have all the social costs that come from many people being uh, tossed out of their current mm-hmm. living arrangements. So how many people did you survey as part of this project? Uh, we were able to reach about a 1,000 Ontarians, again, with, uh, you know, from many uh, different uh, experiences within that, uh, which gives us a, a capacity uh, not to provide, you know, overall portrait of, you know, how people fared compared to the total population, but a large enough sample that we could compare the experiences of different groups of people in terms of those who kept their work or lost their work, or between people who received the Canada Emergency uh, CRB versus those on provincial uh, social assistance or those who Mm -hmm. received no assistance, presumably, because in most cases they were still working. I'm just curious, we know that this is a study that is centered on Ontario, but we are a national program. So I have to ask you if you think that uh, the findings that you've uncovered might be indicative of broader national problems, or if that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always a bit of a stretch to assume that uh, the Ontario experience is the experience elsewhere. I mean, certainly when you get into the finer grain details, for instance, of how uh, provincial governments pushed or didn't push uh, social assistance recipients towards taking the CERB, whether they clawed back some of the CERB of uh, people who managed to qualify for it, those kinds of things will vary a bit from province to province. But, you know, the basic uh, ability to get by or not to get by on $2,000 a month or uh, for people on provincial social assistance, uh, you know, at rates that are much lower than that, uh, is probably not that different across the country. Again, the kinds of jobs people hold uh, varies a bit across the country, but I think, generally speaking, people's experience of, of what happened in their workplaces uh, probably isn't that different uh, as you move across the country. So, I, you know, I, I would say it, I, I would like to know what happened in other places <laughs> and to see the differences. 
Uh, I think we can't assume that it's entirely the same, but I think the general pattern, you know, maybe the shares are a bit different in different provinces because, uh, you know, the social assistance rates are, are at different uh, levels uh, and so forth, uh, you know, will be a bit different, but the general picture I don't think will be uh, that fundamentally different. Well, you know, we know that there were significant job losses because of the pandemic. In your survey, who is it that was most impacted by the job losses? Men or women? Was it racialized workers who lost their jobs? Where did we see the biggest losses? Yeah, I mean, it was in many ways, uh, you know, pretty strongly uh, across the board uh, losses. Uh, I mean, in a way, our results are... have a bit less fine-grained detail than some others that have looked and seen, for instance, uh, you know, women being particularly hard hit. Uh, again, uh, we had a reasonable sample of uh, racialized uh, Ontarians, but uh, not a lot of it showed up statistically in, in our case. So for those instances, I'd probably look at other surveys to, to capture that. We certainly did find in terms of uh, people who received the Ontario Disability Support Program a really large loss in employment. So you know, about a quarter of our respondents had had uh, some employment earnings ahead of uh, the pandemic. Um, half of those uh, lost their employment at the start of the pandemic, so that's certainly uh, a loss much greater than in other groups. Uh, you know, and even within that, um, you know, those who maintained their employment, half of them had reduced hours and earnings. So. Uh, I would say that probably was a group that stood out the most in terms of, of the ones we looked at uh, and where you could see the, the sort of the strongest impact. What about the distinction between the public and the private sector or the not-for-profit sector? Where did we see the biggest job losses? Uh, there would be in the, uh, the private sector, uh, the public sector, and to a lesser extent the not-for-profit sector uh, seemed uh, better able to make the transition, at least in the short term, that we're looking at. And in the longer term, I think there's some real questions about what's going to happen for the not-for-profit sector because uh, the difficulties of uh, a loss of revenues uh, and a difficulty of being able to serve uh, their clientels, uh, at least in the early stage of the pandemic, may have some longer-term uh, impacts. But uh, uh, in most cases, it was a private sector where you saw a somewhat greater impact in terms of of loss of employment. Um, Also, you know, some of the employment dynamics played out much more strongly in parts of the private sector, particularly, you know, the private retail sector. Uh, But again, you know, there's there's a a lot of diversity within within those within those uh, sectors, right, between, uh, you know, people who may have more kind of bureaucratic jobs where they were working from home in the public sector. But then you also had all these essential workers in healthcare working. And so, very different kinds of, of situations mm-hmm. and lived experiences, even within those sectors. I mean, similarly in the private sector, the difference between you know people working uh, again in jobs that could be uh, performed from home uh, was very different from people who had to work frontline retail. Also, what happened to incomes uh, during this period? especially for those people who were uh, ODSP recipients. You said that they lost a lot of their job. There was a 50% loss there. How did incomes decline in this period? And um, how effectively did something like CERB manage to stem the loss of income for Ontario families that you surveyed? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's different stories for those, those two groups. Uh, I mean, people uh, who receive 
change in income. And indeed, there was about four months where there was a $100 uh, supplement that was provided. Uh, you know, but again, uh, you're starting from a benefit that's under $1,200 a month uh, in a very expensive mm-hmm. province to live in. Um, so there, you know, benefits didn't change. Uh, you know, what made life more complicated or difficult, and maybe we'll talk about this later, is that in many ways costs increased. And certainly for the quarter of uh, our respondents who had employment, uh, you know, many of them either lost that or were earning less in it. I mean, uh, CERB is, uh, you know, a slightly different story. I mean, most people on CERB are also uh, seeing a loss of income. I mean, the, the median income in Canada, so at the average for an individual in employment, is about $36,000 a year, whereas a CERB uh, on an annual basis would be $24,000 a year. So for the average, you know, the average worker uh, to, to move from having a job to receiving CERB was to lose uh, fully a third of one's income. And indeed, the CERB, you know, ends up being more or less at, uh, you know, a level of low income in terms of our calculations. Uh, so yeah, for, for people who lost their work, uh, you know, in, in most cases, there was a pretty important income uh, loss. For people in work, um, you know, there was some employers who attempted to reduce wages or cut hours. So certainly there was some some uh, loss of income in many cases uh, for for workers. But a much less severe one than for, say, someone who was to receive CERB. I'm Joitha Gupta. My guest today is Peter Gray from McMaster University, and we're talking about a recent survey that he and uh, some other investigators conducted about the state of work, employment, and income during the COVID-19 pandemic in Ontario. Peter, out of the people that you surveyed, how many or what percentage would you say was unionized? Oh, I'd have to go back and look at the, <laughs> the specific uh, numbers we had. I mean, if there was a, a, an issue with our sample is that we were a bit uh, heavy in uh, the unionized, and so we were a bit above a third, whereas in Ontario, the rate of unionization would be a bit below 30%. Mm-hmm. How effective were the unions in advocating for members? Because we've heard horror stories of workers uh, at meatpacking plants, for example, uh, where they've really had a rough go of it during the pandemic. But I'm curious about whether unions were able to effectively lobby for their members at this time, ensure that health and safety protocols were followed, that people had the option to work from home. What did people who were unionized have to say about their experience? Yeah, I mean, unionization had a a small but regular effect in terms of worker protection. Uh, I mean, we did have a fair bit of evidence both Uh, you know, in the survey results themselves, but also in comments people left at the end of the survey uh, about issues with employers trying to use the pandemic as a way to push changes in the workplace. You know, after a very sort of early uh, moment where, you know, the uh, employers were very interested in terms of worker health and safety and PP, uh, personal protective equipment and so forth, you know, there there began to be a real push around questions of of pay and of working conditions and across most of the different sort of negative interactions a worker could have with their employer uh, we saw more of those negative interactions in non-unionized than unionized uh, workplaces so you know a significant uh, improvement if you had a union in terms of uh, being paid on time uh, you know of not having issues of being unpaid in one's uh, work uh, of not having uh, one's uh, job uh, description and tasks changed and so forth. I mean, the only places where uh, being in a unionized uh, environment uh, tended to push in the other direction 
was in being pushed to take either sick days or holidays uh, right, as part of the response to the pandemic. And even there, it was hard for us to know to what extent that was uh, a question of, of the unions failing or whether it's just uh, people who have sick days and, and those sorts of holidays are more likely, in fact, to be in, in union environments because, as we know, paid sick days are, are you know, fairly rare uh, outside of those environments. But So, you know, overall, uh, the, the message seemed to be that yeah, the pandemic had been used by employers to try and, and push workers harder to try and change uh, some of the relationships of, of power within workplaces and that unions were somewhat effective in uh, protecting their members. Uh, you know, on those, on those scores, the, unions, uh, the presence of unions seemed to reduce those kinds of negative interactions with employers. I'm speculating here, but I would assume and that a number of people with disabilities were in temporary work, were in contract work, and those things were disappeared when the first wave of the pandemic hit. And I would also speculate that a lot of the kinds of work that people with disabilities undertook or have or, or were undertaking before the pandemic were likely non-unionized work. During the pandemic, at least one of the things I've heard anecdotally from people with disabilities is that not only did incomes go down, but expenses went up. Is that something you noticed in your survey as well? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something uh, that came out in our survey. And uh, I have to say that the uh, Wealth Wellington Task Force on, on Poverty Reduction also has put out some reports called Dangerous Disruptions, uh, you know, who, who I think got into kind of a, a more granular uh, discussion of that than we were able to do uh, in our uh, in our study. You know, in terms of, mm-hmm. I mean, part of it was certain things are just more expensive. Uh, you know, food food became more expensive, and getting access to food became more complicated, uh, particularly for people who are immunocompromised and couldn't leave leave their homes. So there were certainly uh, a lot of you know difficulties around that. The necessity of uh, buying uh, different forms of paid uh, sorry of uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, again, for people mm-hmm. who had specific, uh, you know, needs to protect themselves uh, related to their disability, uh, you know, there's an additional cost uh, related to that. So certainly, you know, on some very specific uh, issues like that, those were, you know, additional costs. But also, I mean, people, particularly people who uh, whose income is based on uh, provincial social assistance, the rates are so low that for people to survive, right, they have to make use of all kinds of forms of mutual aid, and of access to services and you know those became much harder to get access to when things happened like cities closing down their public transportation or really limiting the hours of its operation and people's ability to use it uh, again questions of social distancing and the need to maintain social distancing meant a number of important services were closed down as part of the shutdown or even when they returned were harder to access or were less able to, to provide service so, you know, in that sense, even if people's incomes weren't hit that hard, their capacity to actually sustain themselves uh, became harder. And, uh, you know, that I think shows up in, you know, results we had in terms of people's self re- self-reported physical and mental health, uh, you, you know, being, uh, you know, deteriorating. And certainly among recipients of provincial social assistance, that deterioration was much worse than, you know, um, among CERB recipients or uh, among people who, who received no assistance. So. You know, these things, I think, showed up in terms of, uh, you know, income may have looked the same, but uh, the world around it had changed in a way that made it much harder for people to, to sustain themselves. And, you know, it also shows up in increased use of food charity, um, uh, of also very high rates 
uh, of uh, you know days without food or of you know regularly not having enough to eat. So uh, I think that it shows up in, in, in several different ways in our survey. And I think again in the work that other people have done, there's a much more you know fine-grained analysis of, of some of the the pathways in which things became harder and more costly. What about housing? I mean, that is a major expense for any household. Um, and I would imagine that it remained a major expense during the pandemic. But at the same time, at least in Ontario, we did have an eviction moratorium. We've also seen a rent freeze. So how, how did housing secure were the people in the survey? Well, I mean, I think there's some people who are always housing insecure because the inadequacy of, of social assistance incomes. And so I, I don't think that that changed that much. But, you know, those are always high rates and, and are, you know, can't be ignored. I think what was uh, different in this moment is that the CERB pushed a lot of uh, other households into that situation. And so, you know, looking among uh, recipients of CERB, uh, much higher rates of falling behind on rent uh, and that leading to much greater fears of uh, potential eviction or of having to move. And And in those kind of results, they came actually very close uh, to recipients of provincial social assistance, again, who, who, who I think regularly have pretty high responses on that. So, yeah, we did we did see, I think, as part of this, uh, essentially people who received CERB uh, in particular, um, you know, having a much harder time with rent. And so if we think about, you know, CERB as a really large group of people, right, many of them, I think, are going to come out fine from this. But we have seen an increase in the rate of kind of rental arrears in Ontario. About 10% of units in Ontario uh, had some rental arrear between October of 2019 and October of 2020. And so, you know, the question going forward, even if we have a rental freeze and even if we have we had an eviction freeze, is that we, you know, have a fair number of tenants kind of living on the edge and at risk of eviction as we move out into, you know, 2021. Uh, you know, the eviction freeze isn't there anymore. Uh, there's been some uh, community organizing in places like Toronto to try and map the evictions that are taking place. I mean, there seems to be a real danger here of what we might call a slow-motion car crash of, you know, an, inc- an increase in the number of evictions as a result of the debt people took on as part of uh, trying to get through the pandemic while living on CERB, uh, you know, with all the knock-on effects that we know that happen when someone gets evicted. It's a really interesting conversation and, you know, so much that can be said about housing alone. We've got a few minutes left. I mean, given that you've conducted this extensive survey and had so many findings coming out of it, what do you think needs to change? Where does the focus need to be from a policy point of view? Well, we asked our respondents, well, what sort of programs, you know, do you think would be important to put into place? And and there the, the strongest support was for some form of basic income. Beyond that, you know, second and not so far behind was uh, more social housing. And third was a public uh, dental care program. So in terms of the, the, the respondents, I, I think right, there's an emphasis on the one hand on the need for a better income support system and on the, you know, the other hand to do something about housing as a major stressor uh, and issue in terms of people's ability to, to feel secure and to be secure. But in the in the longer term, clearly housing is, is a major issue in Canada that needs to be addressed. But I think also we could look at some of our income security systems. I mean, the situation of people on provincial social assistance, particularly people with disabilities uh, during this pandemic, uh, you know, has shown right, the great vulnerability. And 
so we saw in in the last federal throne speech this idea that maybe uh, there needs to be some kind of disability income support program, a bit like the old age security program that might improve incomes uh, for people living with disabilities and remove them from provincial social assistance and right, all the, the kind of the paternalistic control that goes with that system. So I, I think those are some of the places we, we really need to be looking in terms of, uh, of answers uh, based on you know what people told us in the survey and, and what we could see about how they lived during the pandemic. Peter Grave, thank you very much for being on the program today. You're welcome. Peter Grave is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at McMaster University. We discussed his survey, of which he is a co-author, dealing with income and employment considerations during the pandemic in Ontario. If you missed any of my conversation with Peter, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Peter Grave for being my guest on the program today. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is the technical producer for The Pulse and Andy Frank is our manager. Manager. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.